Let's bow our hearts as we turn to God's word now, shall we? Father, as we come before your word this morning, Father, we ask for your blessing. Lord, as we open these pages, we look at these historical events, Father, we want them to be much more than just information of things that took place a long time ago. Father, we want these things to be alive to us. Father, your word tells us of itself that it is living and powerful. Your, your word also tells us that the volume of the book is written of Jesus. So help us this morning to see Jesus through that which we study. Lord, help us to see also our own reflection. For Lord, just as the mirrors of the children of Israel were melted down and turned into that laver, which speaks and represents the word of God, Lord, so the word is a mirror that reflects our own lives and allows us to see ourselves as we really are. So this morning, Lord, all of these things we pray you impress upon our hearts that we would grow together in knowledge and grace. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So we carry on with our study in the book of First Kings. Um, we're into chapter 16. There's a lot of this chapter. We're just going to try and do the one chapter this morning, uh, God willing. And we see we've got a breakdown now. We're starting to move at a bit, a bit of a faster pace. It's been a long time, obviously, in the beginning of Kings, looking at Solomon. Then we've had this transition, and we've seen the kingdom divide. We've moved on to uh, Jeroboam, who's this king who gets the throne in the north uh, of Israel. Uh, ten tribes are given to him. And then uh, Rehoboam, who's Solomon's son, who remains king over Judah, reigning from Jerusalem. And there's a lot of the, 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 uh, the text that we've seen so far uh, is devoted to these individuals. But then we've started to, to move on. And this morning we're going to look a little bit more at this king, Baasha, of Israel and north. You notice all these kings are kings of Israel, so the northern kingdom here. But then we find that his son, Elah, comes to the throne just for a short period of time, followed by Zimri, and then uh, for a very short period of time this, uh, we have Zimri's there. But then Tibni and Omri. Omri. Um, interestingly, we'll see that they have kind of co-reigns. They're both on the throne at the same time. Uh, it's a political nightmare. Uh, and then finally we'll uh, end this morning by looking at King Ahab, uh, one of the worst kings ever to rule in Israel. Now once again, just to look at this so we can see how we're looking at all the kings of the northern kingdom, Israel. So we've seen Jeroboam comes to the throne around about 985 BC. His son Nadab, as we saw last week, comes to the throne in just two years. He's on the throne. And then Baasha comes along and ends up destroying the house of and, and killing anybody that's left of the house of Jeroboam. He kills Nadab and he then becomes king and reigns for 24 years. And we're going to look at him in just a moment. So this is the section we're going to be covering in this morning's study. And then Kings will take us, first Kings, up to Ahaziah. Because over the next few weeks we're going to spend a lot of time with Ahab. Uh, and you'll see how bad things get uh, with Ahab at the wheel of the nation. Uh, but then we go on. And you'll find there's various other kings that will come. Uh, the one thing we've commented already is this continual changing of dynasty. So Jeroboam starts, and he obviously has his son rule, but then another change to Baasha and his son, and so on. And you see these number of different ones. Jehu is the longest dynasty that we see, and we'll look at that and the reasons why. And God promises Jehu that his children to the fourth generation would sit on the throne. And that's exactly what God does. God's always faithful, um, albeit only for six months, um, his great, 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 great grandson. Uh, Zechariah ends up sitting on the throne. And that takes us all the way down to Hoshea, a king that we're not very familiar with because there's not a lot of print about him. Um, but in 722, he's taken captive by Assyria. And so we're going to see that journey as we go through. Uh, Lord willing, we'll move off in, on, on into 2 Kings when we get to the end of 1 Kings. 
If we look down south, uh, again, the kings that kind of cover the time of study this morning will just be two kings in Judah. So King Asa and King Jehoshaphat. Now, you notice there's five kings I've highlighted here that are in green. They're all the good kings. I say all the good kings, that's all there was. And even they made mistakes. They fell away very often at the end of their reigns. They made mistakes and got things wrong. But they're still listed as being kings that were after God's own heart to a point. Not like David, who was fully after God's own heart, we're told. Um, But these individuals did that which was right in the sight of the Lord, is the refrain that we read uh, in Kings a number of times. And then this lineage is one family dynasty, all the way down from David. Eventually this will come all the way down to the Messiah. And uh, we'll look at that in more detail as we get there. And that will take us all the way. This, this, uh, this king tree, as it were, of uh, Judah takes us down to about 587 when Zedekiah is taken and the throne, in a sense, the crown is taken across to, to Babylon uh, when Zedekiah is deported and then put to death and so on. Interestingly, the kingdom effectively remains in Babylon until some magi from Babylon, end up making a trip back to bring the crown back to Israel some years later when there's a little baby born. Uh, in, uh, well, we, th- we traditionally believe it to be a stable, but as we were looking at Christmas, um, may not have been a stable. We'll look at that again, no doubt, uh, later in the year. But let's uh, carry on with the study now. So jump straight into chapter 16. The first seven verses then deal with this Baasha of Israel. Then the word of the Lord came to Jehu the son of Hanani against Baasha, saying, now before we just look at what's said, I just want to comment here, because we see this individual, Jehu, the son of Hanani. Now, Hanani, he'd been the one that had rebuked King Asa of Judah. So he was the dad, he's a prophet, he speaks uh, for the Lord as the Lord gives him words. Um, but his son also then seems to fall into this role uh, and raised up to be a prophet also. Um, interestingly, for those who rebel against God, as we're seeing here, there's a legacy of failure, the ones that follow on from them. But for those who faithfully serve God, there's a legacy of success. Now, success is a word that we hear so much in today, today's world. And really, we should remove that from our own vocabulary, the word success, and replace it with the word obedience. Because that's what success is. Success for us as a Christian is not whether we're wealthy or prosperous, or this goes well, or that goes well, or the size of our church, or whatever else. It's about whether we're being obedient. That's the way we should really measure whether we're successful. It's not whether we're getting what we want, or whatever else. <clears throat> so... This son of a prophet, this prophet now gives this words to Baash and he says, For as much as I exalted thee out of the dust, and made thee prince over my people Israel. Now, just to pause there, because we're told in um, the book of Romans that there are no powers that exist that are not appointed by God. I wonder if as Baasha is kind of stepping into this situation as he ends up killing Jeroboam's son Nadab and kind of seizing the throne for himself, whether he was looking at that as God engineering the circumstances. He probably didn't. And yet here we see that God is behind the scenes. God is in complete control of all of this. And God and this prophet is reminding Baasha now that it's God that allowed him this position. God made him prince over my people Israel. You see, God has always been very protective and very jealous of his people. And those that have led them astray, those that have caused problems to the nation, have always been judged accordingly. And we read, And thou hast walked in the way of Jeroboam, 
and has made my people Israel to sin, to provoke me to anger with their sins. Behold, I will take away the posterity of Baasha and the posterity of his house, and I will make thy house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. See, Baasha had destroyed, as we said, the house of Jeroboam because of their sin, but amazingly now he's found guilty of doing the same thing. You know, he recognized that there was something wrong with the way that Jeroboam and Nabat had been running the nation. And yet he ends up doing exactly the same thing, making the same mistakes as they make. And this is a tragedy. We read in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul speaking there, he says, um, but with many of them, now speaking of the children of Israel in the wilderness at this point, God was not well pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. And of course you know that the nation had left Egypt, they journeyed, they spent two years at the base of Mount Sinai, then they set off, they come to this place, Kadesh Barnea, they're ready to go into the promised land. Joshua and Caleb go in with another ten, but the other ten say, oh, we're not going in, there's giants in the land, we're fearful. And they discourage the people. You know, what a wonderful weapon in Satan's armory discouragement is and how often he uses that to stop and to halt us in our tracks. Discouragement, a very powerful thing that the enemy uses in our lives. But as a result, of course, they end up wandering for another 38 years. And God decrees and Moses tells the nation that none of that generation would enter into the promised land except for Joshua and Caleb. So 38 years of wandering. And we thought, all of that, all of that group, anybody that was over the age of 20, they died in the wilderness. None of them entered in. So God says, or Paul recounted here, uh, that God wasn't pleased with them and they were overthrown in the wilderness. But then verse 6 says, now these things were our examples. To the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. You know, it's been said often that we learn from our mistakes. And of course there should be truth in that. We should learn from mistakes. But it's not the best way to learn. The best way to learn is from other people's mistakes. So that we don't make those mistakes. Look at what they did wrong. Look at the errors and see what it cost them. See the problems that it caused. And then don't go down the same road. And this is what Paul is saying to us. The whole of this portion in 1 Corinthians 10 really is a list of don't be like this. Don't be like this. Don't do this. And sadly you look at the history of the church and you find everything that Paul lists there, the church has done. We have repeated to the fine details the mistakes that Israel made. And, of course, we have this school and of thought within the, the church, the idea of replacement theology. Of course, it's totally unbiblical. It re- denies God's promises and covenants with Israel. But, you know, in one sense, the church is a type of Israel because we have replicated the same errors, the same mistakes as the nation of Israel did. And maybe in some future study we'll look more closely at those things. Um, But it's a real shame as we look at the problems that we have brought upon ourselves, the church's experience, simply for not learning. And we find now in this study this morning, Baasha doing the same things that Jeroboam had done. He hadn't learned the lessons. Hegel said, history teaches us that man learns nothing from history. I still haven't quite fully understood that, I don't think. But it's, just, it's a great statement of fact that we don't really learn from the mistakes of the past. We carry on verse 4. Him that dieth of Baasha in the city shall the dogs eat, and him that dies um, of his in the fields shall the fowls of the air eat. Now that was the same judgment 
that was prophesied over Jeroboam and his household for their iniquity. Now the same judgment is going to come upon Baasha. Now the rest of the acts of Baasha and what he did and his might, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? Now, last week we mentioned this. You know, we saw with Jeroboam, just kind of so much about the mistakes and what he should have done, and just a very cursory one-line summary about oh everything else he did. The rest of his life is chronicled elsewhere. Here, for Baasha, what he did, his might. Well, just pause and think about that. I mean, he must have done a lot of things. He was king for a number of years in Israel. His might, what conquests did he have? What, what successes did he have? We're not told about any of those. They don't matter. In the scheme of things, none of that is important. Once again, it comes down to did he obey? That's all that matters. Your life is not about how successful you are. Your position in work, your job, your career, your finances, what kind of car you drive, how big your house is. That doesn't matter. The issue is, are you obedient? And that's the challenge. And you'll see with all of these kings, the summary is not what they achieved, the certificates they got from the world, the recognition they got. It's all about, did they obey? Did they serve God? And so we're told everything else. It's written in the books of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel. So Baasha slept with his fathers and was buried in Terzah. And Eli, his son, reigned in his stead. You know, just once again, we've got to think about the role models that we follow. Baasha, terrible end in a sense really, after such an opportunity to go and undo the damage that Jeroboam and Nadab had done. You know, and it's interesting sometimes you need to look at the end result, the conclusion. You know, even sometimes with sin, you know, when you're tempted, think about where would it lead? What would be the result of following that particular path? And you'll realize that those things will only ever lead to pain and to sadness and to loss. As we read in Matthew 18, in the parable that Jesus gives us there, sin will root out all of your increase. It will cost you everything. Verse 7, And also by the hand of the prophet Jehu, the son of Hananiah, came the word of the Lord against Baasha. So this is now another prophetic utterance given against him. And against his house, even for all the evil that he did in the sight of the Lord, in provoking him to anger with the work of his hands. It's not just he got things wrong or didn't get things right. It's that he intentionally did things to provoke God. In being like the house of Jeroboam. And because he killed him. Now that's an interesting statement. Because we kind of. As we go through almost seem to see that. Baasha is fulfilling the prophetic utterance. That had been given about Jeroboam. But here it would appear that. He did something that was wrong in killing him. Now. It would appear that it wasn't God's intention. For Jeroboam to be dealt with in the, in the, the house and the, the lineage of Jeroboam to be dealt with in this way by Baasha. So once again he steps out of the realm and the, re, uh, the remit that God had allowed him. Seemingly taking his, uh, this whole situation, the matter into his own hands. And once again presumption really is a great, a great sin. You know, we may see something and presume that we have the authority or the right to do something. But we need again to go back to God. So the next section, then we're going to get introduced now to his son, Elah, of Israel. So from verse 8 to verse 14. 
We read in the 26th year of Asa, king of Judah. So again, down south, Asa the king is on the throne. He's reigning. In the 26th year began Elah, the son of Basha, to reign over Israel in Terzah two years. So just two years once again. Interestingly, Nadab, the son of Jeroboam, just reigns for two years. And then now this son of Baasha, Elah, again, just two years. Very, very short reign. And he inherits a monumental challenge in a sense. I mean, how can you rule a nation given over to idolatry? Because that's what he's inheriting at this point. We've just had three successive kings. Of course, it would only be possible to do that with God's grace. But what does he do? Well, he makes the same mistakes. Because we read verse 9, there's not a lot more to talk, we're told about him. And his servant Zimri, captain of half his chariot, so clearly he divided his military into two groups, and Zimri's captain over half his chariots conspired against him, as he was in Terza, drinking himself drunk in the house of Arza, steward of uh, his house in Terza. So this king, drinking himself drunk, and then Zimri comes in, and Zimri went in and smote him and killed him in the 27th year of Asa, king of Judah, and reigned in his stead. So it's just an absolute mess what's going on in the northern kingdom. And it came to pass that when he began to reign, as soon as he sat on the throne, that he slew all the house of Baasha. He left him not one that pisseth against a wall, neither his kinsfolk nor his friends. Now that phrase we looked at um, previously, it occurs a number of times during Kings, and it literally does mean, in the, the Hebrew, it's speaking obviously of male descendants, but the Hebrew text actually says, speaks of one urinating against a wall. That's the impression, uh, the, the wording that's given there. Um, and of course, it's just every male descendant is being cut off, just as it had happened to Jeroboam, so now because of iniquity, it happens to Baasha as well. But notice, also, it's not just his family, nor his friends. So his kinsfolk are cut off and his friends also. You know, we need to choose our friends very wisely. Think who it is we associate with. And if those that we associate with are not intent on glorifying God, then we need to choose different friends. Thus did Zimri destroy all the house of uh, Baasha according to the word of the Lord which he spoke against Baasha by Jehu the prophet. For all the sins of Baasha and the sins of Elah his son, by which they sinned and by which they made Israel to sin in provoking the Lord God of Israel to anger with their vanities. Now the rest of the acts of Elah and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? Fine, but as regard to the Bible, as regard to God's account of this individual, all we have is a record of did he obey or didn't he obey? And clearly, as we've just seen, he didn't obey. Everything else he did didn't mean anything in the light of eternity. And that's what we've got to continue to keep in mind. That this life now is a very short part of eternity. You know, we tend to think of the now as this is so important. And we think of our life on earth as being a very long period of time. I love the, I think I've shared this before. There's a great uh, clip, you can see it on uh, YouTube, but by Francis Chan, who's a, an American pastor. And he gets this little, long, really, really long piece of rope, and it stretches all the way across the stage. And right at the end of this piece of rope, there's a little bit of red tape around it. And he said, that red tape represents your life on earth. This rope that goes on and on and on is eternity. He said, and most people spend all of their time focused on this little bit right here. And they don't think about eternity. 
But of course, we're going to be in eternity way longer than, than this in here and now. And, you know, it's, it's crazy that the world spends so much effort and energy on the things of this life. You know, the smart thing to do is to be thinking about eternity. What are we going to be doing in eternity? You know, is our future secure? So now we get a little bit about Zimri. We're told in the 27th year of Asa, so Asa's still reigning down south. There's all this change going on up north. Asa's still on the throne down in Judah. Did Zimri reign? And look at this, seven days. That's all he gets, seven days as king. And the people were encamped against Gibeathon, which belonged to the Philistines. So the army, the rest of the army at this point, so presumably the other half of the army or the, the, the general over the other half of the army has taken them against this um, town that belongs to the Philistines at this time, trying to claim it back, win it back for Israel. And while they're all gone, this is when he steps in and ends and kills, uh, uh, the, uh, puts an end to uh, Baasha's line. Um, and, but we then read, and the people that were encamped uh, heard say, Zimri has conspired and also slain the king. Wherefore all Israel made Omri, the captain of the host, king over Israel that day in the camp. So it implies, we seem to, certainly the commentary seem to think here, that we have um, Zimri and Omri both in these positions of authority under Baasha's son, the king at the time. And then as a result of this, Zimri decides he's going to make a play for the throne. While Omri's away on manoeuvres, uh, trying to win back this town from the Philistines. And then the people hear about it, of course. But they decide they want to follow after Omri. At least some of them do, as we'll see. And so Omri then, uh, they say, so all Israel made Omri captain host king over Israel that day in the camp. So now we've got a division. So in Terza, in the capital city, as it were, of Israel at this time, uh, you've got Zimri now reigning. And then, obviously, uh, you have Omri up north as well. Now, we're told, and Omri went up from Gibeathon, and all Israel with him, and they besieged Terza. And it came to pass that when Zimri saw that the city was taken, that he went into the uh, palace of the king's house and burnt the king's house over him with fire and died. Now, presumably, he just didn't want to be captured. So ends up, in a sense, it's kind of a, a suicide mission. He burns the house down, stays inside, and he dies as a result. So just seven days he's reigning. And we're told, for his sins which he sinned in doing evil in the sight of the Lord. You know, I'm not sure what he was thinking when he decided he wanted to make this play for the kingdom, but I'm sure that he wasn't thinking that seven days later his life would come to an end. And then he'd be in a place waiting for the judgment of the God that he'd rejected. So again, did this even in the sight of the Lord, in walking in the way of Jeroboam and in his sin, which he did to make Israel to sin. And as we said already, that refrain keeps coming back of Jeroboam. Jeroboam made Israel to sin. And that's his legacy through scripture. But all of these kings end up following this foolish path that didn't succeed, that led to obviously so much bloodshed, so much trauma for the nation. Now the rest of the acts of Zimri and his treason, this is how the word of God comments on it, and his treason that he wrought, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? Once again, the rest of the acts, everything else he did in his life, all the other things that are worthy to be recorded, it's not in the Bible, because God's concerned about did he obey or not obey. And so now we get to Tibni, another king. This would be the Bible quiz, shouldn't it? You know, 
uh, list of kings of Israel. And how many of you would have picked Tibni as one of the kings? It's not one that we tend to be very familiar with. But then we told then, well, the people of Israel divided into two parts. Half of the people followed Tibni, the son of Ginath, to make him king. And half followed Omri. But the people that followed Omri prevailed against the people that followed Tibni, the son of Ginesh. So Tibni died and Omri reigned. This uh, civil war that uh, seems to erupt here uh, seems to last for about four to five years. And so we have these two kings reigning during this time. So, I mean, again, what a mess we've got because we've already got this division between the southern kingdom, Judah, and the northern kingdom, Israel. And now in the northern kingdom, we've now got two kings reigning there. It just gets very messy and complicated. But eventually we're told that Omri um, overpowers him effectively. He's the one that uh, the people want as their king. And so uh, this Tibni uh, ends up being removed from office um, and is killed. So then chapter 16, picking up from verse 23 to 28, we then are introduced to Omri, king of Israel. And in the 31st year of Asa, king of Judah, so Asa's quite happy down south. Remember, he was a good king, generally speaking. There were some problems. We talked about that last time. And Lord willing, if we move on into Chronicles, we'll see some of the problems of Asa. But overall, he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord, is what we're told. So he's going in relative peace down south, up north all this turmoil. And in the 31st year of Asa, king of Judah, began Omri to reign over Israel. Twelve years. That's all he gets. Just twelve years. Six years he reigned in Terza. Now... I'll look at this just a moment because we see now a shift of the capital of the northern kingdom, effectively. Verse 24, and he brought the hill Samaria of Shema. Now, the word Samaria in the Hebrew is a contraction uh, from Shema. For two talents of silver, and he built on the hill and called the name of the city which he had built after the name of Shema, owner of the hill, Samaria. So this then becomes... Samaria. It becomes such an important city that when Assyria eventually conquer the land in 722 BC and the Jews are taken away captive and then there's some issues and so on and then the king of Assyria ends up sending some of the, the people back and we'll talk about that again as and when we get there but he refers to them, the king of Assyria, as Samaritans. And that's where we get Samaritans from. It's because of this place, Samaria, this city that becomes so renowned because of this shift. So if we look at it on a map, um, Terza is established as the capital of the northern kingdom up until this point we're looking at here. And then as we've just seen, the palace and so on is burnt with fire. And then this kind of civil war ensues for another four or five years. And then uh, we find that Omri then is the one that effectively purchases this uh, piece of land here. And this then starts to become the capital. And actually, as we'll see, um, Ahab is really the first king to make it his capital city. Uh, and it's then that, that becomes the capital of the northern kingdom. Uh, this dividing line here. Below that you have Judah and Benjamin. Uh, and obviously Jerusalem down there. Uh, where obviously the southern kings reign from. Asa currently reign from that point. But up north here... Uh, this is where then, this then becomes that central place. And Samaria becomes a very important uh, place for a number of reasons. It's, of course, it's the place where uh, Jesus ends up stopping um, just outside here, uh, but the woman at the well that we read about in John's Gospel and so on. But Omri wrought evil in the eyes of the Lord. It's just a sad, kind of uh, like a broken record that just keeps repeating broken record. I should try and explain that for some of the younger people, shouldn't we? 
some of them probably never seen a record, but um, Omri, I can imagine a CD with a jump in it or something. Um, Omri wrought evil in the eyes of the Lord and did worse than all that were before him. Well, that's not a good tag to have there, is it? He did worse than all that were before him. Yet rather than learning from these mistakes, they end up going after them, they end up following and, and even just, just making it worse than it was before. For he walked in all the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and his sin, wherewith he made Israel to sin. Again, just that reference to Jeroboam. To provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger with their vanities. Now the rest of the acts of Omri, which he did, and his might that he showed, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? So Omri slept with his fathers and was buried in Samaria, and Ahab his son reigned in his stead. Now once again, we're not given much detail about Omri. And actually, we understand from extra-biblical sources that there were some interesting things that occurred during his reign. But none of that's recorded. It's just about his obedience. It's about, did he walk with God or not? And clearly, not only did he not walk with God, but he led the people further away from God than they'd been even prior to that point. So again, all the other things, they don't matter. Are you being obedient? That's what matters. And so now, we get to our last king for this morning from chapter, 20, from, sorry, chapter 16, verse 29 to 34. And king Ahab, and we read... And in the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, so Asa's still reigning, all this turmoil been going up, up in north, began Ahab, the son of Omri, to reign over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria. So he's now the first king to really rule and reign in Samaria, as we just mentioned. 22 years. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord, above all that were before him. And it came to pass... As if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, that he took to wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Zidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. This is just such a, a tragedy. I mean, for a start, we read back in Deuteronomy, and we looked at this previously, that when a king was to come to the throne, they were to write out for themselves a copy of the law. They were to do certain things. And one of those things, they were not to take foreign wives. Because those wives would pull their hearts away from God. This was Solomon's great mistake. Or one of a number of mistakes. But one of the the, the pivotal ones. That he allowed these foreign wives to pull his hearts away from God. And now we find that Ahab, as if it wasn't bad enough already, ends up marrying this lady Jezebel. Now I don't know what you know about Jezebel. But I'm guessing you probably don't know any young girls that are called Jezebel. It's not a very popular name for children to have. History has given us enough of a record uh, about this individual. <clears throat> she was the daughter of this king, Ethbaal, who was a priest of Baal. And also Ethbaal had murdered his brother to take the throne. Uh, this Again, the king of Zidonians, we're told. Her name means unmarried or without cohabitation. Now, in the context, what we're seeing here, that really this is not just a marriage of love. They didn't see each other and love at first sight and fall in love with each other and so on. It was a marriage of convenience. They married each other for political power. She married him to gain his position, that she could become a queen. It wasn't that... 
she really necessarily loved him or anything else. But the whole context of this, and you'll see with her character, uh, this was a kind of individual. I mean, some commentaries say that the most evil woman on record in the Bible, um, and I certainly think, you know, when you look at the other ladies that are mentioned that were ungodly, um, she definitely tops the list. Uh, J. Vernon McGee, in his commentary, says this, She was strong-willed and possessed a dominant personality, but she had no moral sense. She was hardened into insensibility. She was unscrupulous and the most wicked person in history, bar none. That's quite a statement. But actually, the more you start to look into the life of this woman and what she did, you'll start to see that that's not actually that far short of the mark. And we won't go into it this morning because in some of the future uh, studies we've got in First Kings, we'll see just some of the things she did and how we find her referenced in the New Testament and particularly in the book of Revelation. But actually, subtly, we find this individual through all of Scripture. We find this character not Jezebel herself but the attitude if you like the the spiritual power that was driving her all the way right from early days right from Babylon all the way through and when we get a little bit further in our studies we'll spend a bit of time and go through and look at some of these references to see how Satan has used this female entity this kind of uh, ungodly spiritual power. In fact, the book of Revelation in 1718 speaks of uh, a harlot. It's, it's the description that's given. Speaking of this one, of the, the mother of all these uh, abominations and so on. And we'll look at the context and, and so on as we go through those studies. But so much of it is rooted here back in Jezebel and that itself comes out of Babylon. But for now we read... And he reared up an altar for Baal. Why? Because of his wife. Because this lady now that he's introduced and allowed into his life, she wants him to get into worshipping this false god. So he raised up an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he had built in Samaria. So this is supposed to be a king of Israel. Israel, who God had called and chosen and led out of Egypt, led through the wilderness, brought into the promised land under Joshua. The one who God had allowed by his grace to defeat these nations in the land. Nations like, or the the, the, uh, groups of people in the land, like Jericho. And so many others, the cities that fell. And God had established them. And we go through that terrible, dismal time of the judges. And then we get to the monarchy. And Saul is a, a real shame. But then David comes to the throne. You think, this is wonderful. If only he could just carry on like this. But now all of these subsequent kings are just getting worse and worse and worse. And they don't learn the lessons of the past. And now Ahab making it even worse by allowing this foreign wife of his to pull his heart. And the last verse for this chapter is kind of an obscure verse in a sense. But we're told that in his days, during the time that Ahab is reigning, did um, Hiel, the uh, Bethelite, build Jericho. And then we're told... He laid the foundation thereof in Abraham, his firstborn, and set up the gates thereof in his youngest son, Sergab, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. Now, if you want to just turn in your Bibles, I haven't got the scripture. Actually, I apologize, I think I have got the scripture. No, I haven't. Let's go back. Let's turn there to Joshua chapter 6, just so we can read this ourselves. Because at the time of the conquering of Jericho, Joshua makes this proclamation. So Joshua chapter 6 
and verse 26. So again, they've crossed over the Jordan, they've uh, walked around and marched around the, the city of Jericho 13 times. So they go, they go around once a day for six days, and on the seventh day they march around seven times. And then the walls come down, they go in the conquer city, of course Rahab is saved. And we talked about this a few weeks ago, it's a great picture of, of, uh, of Christ and being safe in Christ and so on. Um, but verse 26 says, And Joshua adjured them at that time, saying, Cursed be the man before the Lord that raises up and builds this city of Jericho. He shall lay the foundation thereof in his firstborn, and in his youngest son shall, it set, shall he set up the gates of it. Just a small little verse. But this is what Joshua pronounces against this city. And now we're told that during the days of Ahab, this individual, Hael, decides that he's going to build Jericho. Now, presumably, somewhat ignorant of the scripture that had been already recorded by this story, the the words of Joshua. Because we're told that in doing this, when he starts the job, we're told that his firstborn child dies. Now, rather than maybe going and seeking God and see if there's a reason. He doesn't. He just seems to carry on with his project. And finally he gets to the completion of the work and he sets up the gates. And then his youngest son dies, just as been prophesied by Joshua. Now it seems kind of a strange thing. But one scripture I was certainly pointing to is in Matthew 12, verse 36 to 37. You see, we are quite glib sometimes with the words that we say. And we need to be careful, and this is a good lesson for us to be careful. Because Jesus says, I say unto you that every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give account thereof in the day of judgment. For by thy words they shall be justified, and by thy words thou shall be condemned. It seems that God takes words very seriously. And we can't just be trivial. We often say things that probably we don't mean. And it's a challenge to us to think about what we actually do say, particularly when we moan or complain about things. For a start, as believers, as Christians, we're to do all things without complaining and murmuring, without disputing. That's what Paul tells us. And we should be like that. We shouldn't be continually moaning and complaining. But, you know, so often we say things. You know, and are we in some of those things opening ourselves up to attacks of the enemy? Are we allowing the devil to get a foothold? Are we allowing, are we sowing the seeds of discouragement in our own life, sometimes by the things we say? Because clearly here, a curse is placed. And there's all sorts of books you can buy that will tell you all sorts of things about blessings and curses and so on. But you cannot get away from the fact that Joshua places a curse on whoever would build, rebuild the city of Jericho and we see here it fulfilled in detail, as Joshua has said. We find also with Jacob and Laban. Laban places a curse on whoever had stole his household gods, uh, gods that they'd stolen, they'd taken away. And we find that Rachel uh, is the one that has stolen them. And she ends up dying as a result of that as well. And there's a number of occasions in Scripture. We see also with Peter in the New Testament. Three times in a courtyard, he says to a, a young girl, no, I'm not his disciple. And at the time of the resurrection, Jesus says, go and tell his disciples and Peter. Peter is listed as separate from the disciples. Why? Because he disowned himself as a disciple. By his words, you'll be justified by the words condemned. And that's why in John's gospel at the end, three times, Jesus says to Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, son of John, do you love me? Three times. And by God's grace restores him. So kind of a final lesson for this morning is just be very careful of the things we say 
We can't just be so glib and think it doesn't matter. Because in God's eyes, it does matter. What a depressing morning. I'm sorry about that, folks. But it gets better. And we'll look at some of the the good things that come. And then next week, we're going to move into chapter 17. And chapter 17 starts with this individual who we know very little about just waltzing onto the pages of Scripture. A man that changed a nation because he loved God. And that will be a good study. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you that we have these lessons, these records of people that were just so foolish in not trusting you. And Lord, we just see the legacy and the, the damage that was caused because they didn't obey you. But rather went after their own lusts, rather serving their own desires. Father, help us to apply these things to our own lives. And see that, Father, we have a day-by-day choice as to how we are to live. We can live our own way, doing our own things, or we can live by surrendering to you. And Lord, we pray that by your grace you help us to do the latter. Lord, help us not to desire the things of the flesh, but realize, Lord, that those things will just pull us away from you. They won't help us. And so, Lord, we want to walk by faith and not by sight. But the only way we can do that is by your grace. So we ask... Right now, for an outpouring of your Holy Spirit upon us, fill us afresh, Lord, with your Spirit. And that this week we would know your grace, that we would walk in obedience to you. For we ask it in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.